those who might define themselves as regular purveyors of comics, and thus those who frequent comic book shops, there is a simple fact that would almost seem unnecessary to state, should you say to them, comic shops, isn't that a place where everything contains a story? And the great thing about comic shops is that you never know what you're going to get when you open a book. It doesn't matter if it's a title that you've been reading for years or the first time you've tried or are trying a new series or maybe even picking up a collected series like a graphic novel. What I love is that on a regular, yes, frequent trip to my local comic shop, Cape and Cal Comics in Oakland, California, I was lucky enough to stumble upon a story that connects to the owner of the shop through uh, Aton and also was introduced to the story through uh, one of the guys who works there, Kevin. So to both of you, I am extremely grateful for you telling me about Harry Manoff. I'm going to now allow you to hear all about a rabbi who uses comics, not only in the past as part of his instruction as the leader of a community, but also still as a professor at St. Mary's University. Join me now for this wonderful conversation with Harry Manoff. Hello and welcome to Storytelling with Seth. It is my genuine pleasure to invite Rabbi Harry Menoff here with us today. And I'm just going to say that I was sent here by his son to uh, make contact. First, it was another employee at their shop, Cape and Cow Comics, who told me a little bit about Harry. And then it was his son, Aton, who said, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll give you his info, but you got to tell him you came from the comic shop. And that's how I'm going to start things off by saying, Harry, thanks for coming on and uh, talking with me today. Thank you. Um, a pleasure to be here. Well, I'm going to say for starters that they had me hooked the moment I mentioned that I'd been doing a bit of um, teaching and using comics just for fun little ways to illustrate a point. And as soon as I did, one of the employees, Kevin, said, oh, you got to talk to Aton's dad. He uses comics in teaching. He's been using it actually uh, in some of his uh, his work in the church and in the synagogue and in lessons. And I was like, are you kidding me? And he just started spinning along. And I thought to myself, well, okay, let's have us a good time here. And he goes, yeah, you should follow up with Aton. And I said, okay, next time Aton's work in the window because it's been COVID situation. So I'm only allowed to walk up to the storefront. And then I finally got the chance to get uh, Aton to, you know, greet me because he was always in the back doing stuff or he wasn't around. So I had the chance to ask him and he, he set me up with you. And I, I was amazed by the fact that he was like, oh yeah, oh yeah, my dad's a huge, he, he kind of got me into it. And then as I was reading, it, it was so interesting that <laughs> your story with comics is pretty amazing. But before I did that research, I wondered which came first, the, the faith or the comics or, you know, where was, but I, I love the idea that when I was reading up about it, it seems like your story starts with uh, with a time uh, where your dad was a part owner in a summer camp and you would be lucky enough to uh, clean up. But uh, despite doing cleanup work, you were also finding these gems like collectible cards and comics. Which my mother did not throw away. She, she didn't throw away anything. But when in her neighbor in the neighborhood, she became the tutor for all the children that needed some extra work because she was a, a fifth grade teacher. 
And so any child that came for a little extra work with her, she would reward with my comic books and my baseball cards. <laughs> so she didn't throw them away. She gave them to somebody else who now has a, a multi-million dollar collection of comic books. Oh, was there any sort of acknowledgement that this was something that you valued and treasured or was there simply no argument involved? No, it, it was um, it probably was when I was in college, probably when they were sitting on the floor in my closet. But um, <laughs> but the fact is, is that like her, I never threw anything away either. So I just collect them. I had no idea which whether they were any good or not. I put them in the plastic bags and put them in that in a box in my closet. And um, had all uh, the only baseball cards I kept were, were the Yankees, and I had all the Yankees from probably the late fifties until I stopped collecting when I was in college in the seventies. So um, I had, and she just gave them away. She gave away uh, some uh, statuette, two statuettes that I had: one of Yogi Berra and one of Mickey Mantle. And when Aton and I and my, the rest of the family were living down in San Luis Obispo, somebody broke into the card shop stole those two, the same items, the two same items, not mine, but two others like it, and then killed the owner of the store because that was the only way to get away with those two figures. So I figure it's better that it's not in my house. (laughs) That is pretty amazing. Oh my goodness. Like, you know, I mean, granted, there's a party that's thinking, wow, that's terrible that that these are no longer. And yet at the same time, did I really want to be in the path of that, you know, destruction and oh, chaos? Wow. Um, are, were there any that you knew, like the moment you came home and you would sort of just be like, there's a disturbance in the force. And you would sort of, <laughs> you know, go, mom, mom, I feel like no, you gave it, something. No, probably not. Because, you know, I, I would put them in the box and I don't remember rereading any of the comics. I don't know why I saved them. I just, because I saved everything because she was a, a pack rat and I was a pack rat. And um, so I, I just kept them. Uh, and if she gave away one or two or, or 10 from the pile, I would never have noticed it wow. until there were none left. <laughs> well, I, I also love the fact that, you know, I, you, you mentioned that the giving away process started while you were attending college, because that's also sort of when the collecting period for you stopped for a while, correct? Right. Like you had uh, different priorities at that point. And um, at, at that point, had you already gone to college with an intention of, of, of moving into um, a, a seminary-like education or, or looking at theology as a, an approach? Was that already yeah, part that of was, you going? That was always part of my plan. Um, even when I, when I showed up at the draft board, um, the head of the draft board knew my father and said, Manhoff, you want to be a rabbi, don't you? I said, yes. He said, uh, okay, well, I'm going to give you a 4D deferment, which meant I had, would be deferred until I finished divinity school. I didn't even start the college yet. So I had four years of college and five years of divinity school. Uh, I was, you know, by the time I got out of, uh, out of the seminary, the war was over. Understood. Understood. Yeah. No, uh, <laughs> my father actually ended up enlisting because his brother had come back um, from the previous conflict and said, I'm a mortar man. Like, <laughs> I can't get any work. He's like, you, they're probably going to draft you, enlist, get in there, get a trade. At least, you know, if they're going to use you, get something out of it in the process. So that that ended up being, he was a cotton picker from like the age of four to mm. 18. And um, yeah, down in the uh, the Fresno, you know, area, little town called Layton. But that was his sort of like understanding, like, okay, I got two choices, either get scooped up, 
and throw them wherever they want me or see if I can have any sort of guidance in the direction of what's going on with me. So um, how early was that, that sort of, uh, you know, something that you planned on doing? I think I, think I, I knew from, from when I became a bar mitzvah, which was at age 13. And from yeah. then on, I was, uh, I just knew that that's, I was primed in my family to be a doctor. I was the one in the family that my cousin was supposed to be the lawyer and somebody else was supposed to be the accountant. You know, we, that's the way it goes in, in a family like ours. There was plans. Uh, <laughs> it was planned. And, you know, I, I got into Yale. And so they, uh, they just figured I'd, you know, be a bio biochem major and become a doctor, but I can't stand the sight of blood. I, I can't watch the animal vet, veterinary uh, shows that are on television that my wife and granddaughter love. I can't stand <laughs> it when the animals are bleeding. Um, it makes me physically ill. So I didn't become a doctor. Uh, I have two doctorates now, but they still don't let me prescribe medicine. So uh, one day, one day. <laughs> <laughs> so yes, uh, uh, yeah, I turned down so from the bar mitzvah. From, say that again. Saying so you were, but say you were saying from the the time of your bar mitzvah it was. Was there something specific that happened during that time, part of uh, you know the study, or was it just? Uh, I don't know. How would you describe it? Well, it's it was really I wanted to be a, a high school math teacher. My father was a gym teacher and a football coach, um, and I wanted to teach math. And my father threatened to break both my legs and an arm and disinherit me if I became a high school teacher because he struggled so much to support the family on a high school teacher's salary. So he didn't want me to have to struggle like that. And so I continue with the idea that I wanted to teach, but I figured if I got to uh, go to rabbinical school and then get a PhD, I could teach. Uh, eventually I went to rabbinical school, eventually I got the PhD, but by then I was a congregational rabbi and, and uh, never got into the world of academia. Understood. Understood. Um, yeah. I'm always just intrigued, you know, when that sort of decision gets made, uh, because I, I feel like it, in some um, professions, it has to be something that's understood at a relatively early age. Uh, if you want to become a doctor, you know, sometime around your freshman year, you're taking certain <laughs> courses and doing these AP things. And in the roles that I've had in education, I've been lucky enough to, to work with that and, and sort of, you know, understand sort of how steep the trajectory can become for anyone who uh, is aspiring that far. So, you know, knowing, okay, well, that's not going to be my path. I, I've got a different idea. And how early does that get formed? Um, so then you, you go to college, you, you take a break from collecting, you, as you mentioned, um, become a congregational rabbi which um, is there a, a point that that was also sort of determined instead of academia? Was it because um, life and other directions were, were oh, shaping that? I, my junior year in college, I went to Israel. I met uh, a very fine woman who's been my wife for the last 46 years. Um, and so we came back, we came back to the States did our senior years on either side of the country and got married right at the end of senior year. So that when I entered seminary, uh, we'd be married. So we, you know, because we, we were moving to Jerusalem for at least a year. And I just wow. thought that it'd be a good idea to be married to the woman uh, rather than, you know, <laughs> I, I found out that a lot of my other, the other students in my class didn't feel the same way and they came with their girlfriends, but that was, uh, you know. So uh, yes, I came back, did four, uh, four more years of seminary, two in Los Angeles, two in New York. And wow. while I was in New York, I started studying at Columbia uh, on a PhD. And um, I got all my classwork done, got what they call an MPhil, Masters of Philosophy. And then um, 
the job I had in New Jersey kind of fizzled. So I had to find a new job. And the job I found was in California. So I tried to transfer to UCLA, but uh, they didn't see it the way I saw it. It was a 100 mile, 200, 200 mile uh, commute. Didn't, didn't work out for me. So then I decided to start again in education. Uh, that didn't work out. Then I decided to start a, a fourth program in, um, in, ancient, uh, in religious studies at University of California, Santa Barbara, which was only 100 miles away. So I commuted to, to Santa Barbara for a couple of years, did my classwork and uh, wrote in a totally different field. I, I ended up writing uh, my dissertation about the New Testament uh, because I wanted to write about something that I didn't have a, a religious commitment to. So whatever, wow. where the re research took me, that's where I went. So I was in uh, 32nd grade when I got my, my PhD. <laughs> I like the chronology of 32nd grade. That's a good frame of uh, <laughs> establishment. But then at some point you found that comics were something you were drawn back to. Uh, the, the, one of the interviews I read suggests that the uh, impending death of Superman seemed to have played a, a pivotal moment. You know, uh, curious uh, how you discovered that you were you were reading something or so in, the, in the, the local paper in San Luis Obispo, the San Luis Obispo, the Telegram Tribune, um, there was a little one-inch column that said that DC was planning to kill Superman, and I said to Aton, who was eight at the time. Said Aton, they can't kill Superman. Superman is an icon. The world knows Superman. You cannot end Superman. The three most uh, recognizable symbols in the world are Superman's S, Batman's uh, bat, and Mickey Mouse's ears. And so uh, they can't kill Superman. So here's what's going to happen. Based on my experience from when I was your age, um, they're going to kill him off. And then next week, they're going to either say it was a pretend or it was a dream or they're gonna bring him back to life. But whatever it is, he's not gonna be dead. Um, and so um, so we, we went to the store, we bought the, the death of Superman. It was the, uh, the doomsday issue. And then we realized that there's three other doomsday issues that lead up to it, right? And so we had to get those. And then now I understand, now I've got to get a hold of the Justice League uh, doomsday cameo, because that one's the rare one. Um, which now we have about 17 of. And um, back then it was a little hard to get a, get a hold of. Um, so that began collecting. So, so we began reading the, the funeral for a friend, which was, you know, now brings in the rest of the DC universe. Meanwhile, the next week, which was supposed to be the next week, was a year later when Superman finally came back to life. By then we had read all the DC cross crossovers. We were into Batman and, and Green Lantern, Flash, and Aquaman, they were all were in the, uh, and Wonder Woman, so they were all in the, the crossover. And so we started following them too. And so when they finally brought back Superman in the black uh, costume, um, we had, we were hooked and, and we've been talking about them and, and they become part of our family. Um, you know, so uh, we, you know, we can talk about, you know, Clark, well, he's got, his cat's name is Kyle. Uh, and, you know, I was gonna, you know, have my children named like that too but my wife didn't see it that way um but that, that's gonna happen you know there's there's what you want and then there's what you know your partner agrees to <laughs> right, right, right 
Well, that's interesting because that was such a pivotal thing for me. I was so angry with friends of mine that I was in school with where we agreed we'd all go together to get the, the death of Superman. I'd been reading for a few years before that, but I was like, look, we got to go early. I think collectors are going to really try and swoop this thing up. No, no, we'll wait till lunch break. And I was like, no, we have a break earlier than that. 15 minutes, we can get there and back. <laughs> and, you know, they're like, no, and, you know, we all got to go together. So we waited till lunch. We got there. It was all cleaned out. None of the oh, issues my. were available. And I'm looking at them like, I don't know if I can ever trust you guys again, you know, because <laughs> I'd had everything else. Like I'd been reading all the ones up to it. I had the funeral for the friend afterwards. And also for me, it really started to sort of change the way I looked at the comics because I felt so many people had gotten into it for a reason other than what I originally did, which right. was the colors are gorgeous. The characters are amazing and everything feels over the top. What I didn't have is your foresight. I thought, what if they don't bring him back? There were all these <laughs> theories. I was new collecting. I had just gotten into comics. I was raised in a Christian household. Comics were, I was playing with fire. Like they were pretty sure I was a slippery slope and this was all going to go downhill in a terrible way. Um, and, you know, my mom was just like, you can't kill Superman. That's killing hope. Like, you know, it's clearly a sign of the moral decrepitude that the uh, world is undertaking and how bad we've gotten. We're willing to kill off. Superman. And I was just like, Okay, you guys are putting a lot of pressure on this. I just really like love the character. I love the Flash. That was my first introduction. And, and I knew they brought him back, but I thought killing off Superman was such a big deal that they were talking about uh, a couple of other characters like Valor, uh, you know, who, who was like, oh yeah, he's as strong as Superman. They could just slot him right in there. And I was really, wow, what's... And then the whole time collecting funeral for a friend, it was always the question for me. So yeah, they, they, they take a week to uh, do everything along the way they twist up you know poor Hal Jordan and Coast City and the cyborg and all the other people right. and then they have the reign <laughs> of was, Superman right <laughs> which is now something you can enjoy as an animated feature on uh, DC right. Infinite <laughs> so that that brings you in but but it sounds like one things didn't just stick with Superman because as you mentioned in order to keep up with what was going on you had to go out and get the Justice League ones um, and your whole plan had been, as I understood it, to get the death of Superman. Next issue was supposed to be Superman comes back to life. You've got the combined collection and you guys are done. Like you're, right. you're, you're set. And that, that, as anyone knows about that period in comics, that got blown to smithereens a year later. How heavily invested? Like how many other titles are you reading besides Superman at that point? So uh, the other key to the puzzle was that Costco came out with its multi-pack of comic books and you could right. buy 20 comic books for five dollars or something like that and so uh and you know there were what did i know there were 20 comic books and some of them were <laughs> and batman and uh so we, we got those and then so then we started thinking filling in uh, runs and that's how we got into collecting because i'm i'm a collector I, I like to collect things and so i wanted to do it systematically which brought us to the first mini comic con in san luis obispo at cal poly and then uh and it was just a couple of kids from cal poly had their <laughs> comics out on the table and um you know and then the next one we went to was in hayward which was like uh it's a little town here it's uh you know it's not a it's it's not a very with it town okay it's kind of old school um and uh, they had a, a little uh comic shop there but but once a year, they had at the uh, Veterans Hall, they had a Comic-Con. You know, it was, a, it was much more 
established than the one at Cal Poly. And uh, so we started going there and looking for back issues and things like that. And that, of course, led us to San Diego. And we went for most years, for, for years and years and years. Yeah, I read that uh, Aton missed a wedding uh, one year. And that um, you have made a practice of not scheduling certain ceremonies during during that period because it's like, nope, I know I'm going to be otherwise occupied. Right. <laughs> right. And we brought, we, bought, oh. we brought Aton's uh, daughter for her first birthday to Comic-Con. And we have wow. pictures of her with all the all the people in uh, cosplay with a sign saying it's my first birthday. Um, and she was cool. I mean, she's with the, all these jokers and and, you know. Chewbacca didn't bother her in the least. She just took pictures with everybody. So, um, yeah, <laughs> no, we don't we don't let anything get in the way. <laughs> that sounds so. I'm just curious, what does that window look like when you when you project each year when you guys were planning? Was it like from this day to this day? Because I got to get ready to go, and then I got to recover after I get back. That's <laughs> at least me when it comes to some things. And like Comic Con, it feels like it's like everything you. Th- you think you can try and do crammed into a very short period of time, roughly a Thursday to a Sunday night, maybe depending on where right. you're doing and what you're trying to do. And a lot of that is spent in lines. I mean, I knew a guy who would go and he said, look, man, it's not even the cost of other stuff. It's, you know, right now it's like urban camping is what really kills me because how much I have to camp out for. Right. Yeah. And, and I don't, I, that's not the reason I'm there for is to stand in the lines. Right. Uh, Aton has been on, Two panels now and he's been twice he's been nominated for an eisner for the top retailer um i voted and, for him <laughs> <laughs> i don't have a vote um so yeah so we go for that um but we're you know we're still nostalgic about the first times we went when you could walk down the aisles and, and stop and talk to people and i got to meet uh, julie schwartz there who was uh, one of the editors of the superman and, yeah that's uh, awesome so I sat down with him one time and talked about the, the history of Jews and comic books, which is what I started my lecture series on. And um, he told me all about all the people that he worked with and how he got into it and everything. We got we became very close. And then every year when it came to Comic-Con, he'd see me or I'd see him, but he'd yell, Rabbi, come on over. You know, so he remembered <laughs> I was a rabbi. And and so we'd spend time together. And um, I have a number. So whenever I would write, he'd write back and he'd put in a, a signed baseball card of himself you know that they have the dc uh, (laughs) artists and things like that and so i have his so i have the largest collection of signed uh julie schwartz's of anybody in the world i'm sure um but that that was a prize i mean i I loved it i I have two copies of his book and uh it it really helped me uh get together get get an academic interest into uh just the fun of doing this See, this is why sometimes I think it's great to have like this huge laundry list of questions that I'm just going to like check <laughs> off. But then other times as I'm listening to a conversation, I think to myself, I don't even have to bother when you set it up so well like that, because you were just describing talking with uh, Julie Schwartz about what you were doing with your teaching as well as comics. Can you use this opportunity to sort of move us in that direction and talk about where did where did that come from? I mean, you're, you're collecting but you started to see the correlations. One, um, something that I read, you know, just how many uh, people that you can identify at DC who are uh, big and small names that were a huge part of this and part of that community. It was almost like uh, a definite place where there was a presence. Um, 
Tell me a little I bit think, about, you know, crossing those. I think bridges. every Jewish uh, kid grows up knowing that Siegel and Schuster were Jewish. Um, it's, you know, it's like knowing Sandy, Sandy Koufax was Jewish and did pitch on okay. people. So, uh, so it, I knew that there were Jews involved. Uh, all you do is see the name Bob Keen, and you know that that's a Jewish name. By the way, it's not his real name, um, which bothered me about all the Marvel uh, writers. They all changed their names. Uh, all the Jewish writers changed their names. But only, um, I'm taking it back, only Gil Kane changed his name to Kane. Maybe in deference to Bob Kane, I don't know. But anyway, so these are, Kane is a, is a very Jewish sounding name. Um, and it, so uh, I began getting interested in the history and why I asked the question, why were Jews so uh, involved with comic books? What, why not regular publishing? So my first theory was, is that Jews back before World War II were pretty discriminated against and it would be hard for them to get their books published. So they went into a different kind of writing. But that was completely blown out of the water when all I did was check the names of the uh, publishers back then. And it turns out that uh, Random House and, uh, well, let's see, Knopp, uh, Pocket Books, Book of the Month Club, Literary Club, these are all by Jewish businesses. Um, I can't think of the name. Uh, uh, well, anyway, so uh, Brentano is a Jewish name too. And um, so, all these Jews were involved in publishing. So that was not the reason that they, that these young people went into comics. They just, uh, I think it's, Jews are in storytelling. Uh, that's that's what, what I say, the rabbis are just storytellers. We're really just frustrated stand-ups, but, but other than that, we, we, uh, <laughs> we're storytellers. And so we have a long, long tradition of stories, telling stories and, and uh, some of it influenced some of the, the characters that you see in the comic books. Um, and some of them did not, but uh, Julie Schwartz felt very strongly that the good guys had to win at the end of the story. I mean, that, that just had to be that way. Um, and that, and he also felt that Superman should win by outsmarting his enemy, not by beating him up. I like okay. that strategy. Yeah, you know, so, he's got uh, the physical tools, but it's the ability to apply them with a, you know, a cognitive awareness. <laughs> right. So, uh, so, you know, I started, you know, I started making references on the pulpit to some of the comic books I was reading at any given time. And uh, it didn't matter because it, they, they rolled their eyes at anything I said from the pulpit, whether it was <laughs> politics or, or, you know, I could do a serious sermon every once in a while, but, but they, they put the fall asleep. So, you know, you got to do something to keep them, keep them awake. Um, no, I, you know, there's always a positive lesson in, in the DC comics. It's not the indie dark, you know, sometimes, you know, the, the, the vampire wins, you know, this is just, that's not the way it's supposed to be. So, <laughs> um, so it's, it's easy to do. Um, one of the, the lessons that I do most often, and I've been doing it for many, many years, is when I'm teaching, uh, I teach at St. Mary's College, uh, very, very part-time. And when I'm trying to explain to the students the first century and why Jewish people followed Jesus and why other Jewish people did not, I say, there's two guys out in the desert and they're forming armies. They're gonna, they're gonna challenge Rome, the strongest army in the world, okay? There's two generals out there. And you, if you go join one of those generals, you're putting your life in his hands. Now, one of these generals can fly 
and he shoots beams out of his eyes. And he's so super strong, he probably could beat the Romans up all by himself. And the other guy, super, super smart. He's got all the best weapons. He's taught people how to fight, you know. And then I say to my students, who are you going to join, right? Are you going to go to? And then I ask them who that, you know, they, they've obviously figured out Superman and Batman. And I say to them, uh, why would you go to Superman? Why would you go to Batman? And then finally, it's my turn. I would say to them, well, back in the first century, there were some people who thought that the Messiah was going to be divine and that he could fly and he could beat up the Romans all by himself. And there were others who thought that the, that the uh, Messiah was going to be a great general uh, who was going to organize the armies. That was Bar Kochba in the second century. And um, so if I had to choose between the two, I'd probably go to Batman because even though Superman's a part of my house and a part of my life and everything, I'm not really sure a man can fly. <laughs> okay. So that's, I mean, that's the story. And that's, that's a lesson for, for the students to think about, you know, what, what's the difference between a, a, a Messiah that can, can do everything almost magically and one that has to be human and the Jewish tradition had both. And I, I think I, I love the idea of describing that, especially, you know, re representing it between the two. Um, one, because I also came across the fact that you've collected issues for both of those characters. And it doesn't sound like you've missed any in, uh, <laughs> in the so, time since you got in into collecting. So when we started collecting, um, well, from the time we began collecting when Eitan was eight until he opened his store we were building up our Batman and Superman collections. And we had 40 years worth of Superman titles and 35 years of Batman titles. And that meant all of them. That's impressive. <laughs> At that point, it was getting to be a lot more expensive to fill in the runs than, uh, than it was at the beginning when we'd go, we'd go and we'd do the quarter boxes and we'd go, yeah, they're probably too young, but there was a time when there were quarter boxes. Now the quarter <laughs> boxes are a dollar, but it, you know. But the fact was, is we would sit there on the floor and just keep going through them until we looked on our list and saw whether we needed it or didn't need it. And then, of course, I mean, I uh, Aton can recognize a cover of a comic book uh, that he's seen once, but I can't. Um, I I had a I did a memory at one point, but it's not that way anymore because I'm getting old. <laughs> anyway, uh, inevitably, I would buy two or three of the same uh, issue that we were looking for. It'd be on my list of what I was looking for, and I'd forget to cross it off. So I'd get it twice more. Um, so, but, you know, we had a good time at Comic-Con. And, and again, those were the days when you could stand in line for 15 minutes and get up to the DC desk, and somebody would draw a picture for you in your, in your uh, book, in your uh, scrapbook. And uh, so we have a lot of original art from those days. Of course, it's not worth anything because it's not uh, authenticated. But, uh, but one of our favorites was we went down to Santa Barbara uh, where Bruce Tim and who was the other? Anyway, he, he, they're there. And what do we know? You know, so uh, Aton <laughs> asked Bruce Tim to draw, draw a Batman for him. So he draws this Batman and he says he's never done that before. You know, he's, he's written it, but he's never drawn it. And um, so we might have the only Bruce Tim Batman ever drawn framed in, in, uh, in the store. 
Wow. And then to know that that's the guy who went on to create such a legacy with his animated series running right. from Batman on. Yep. Somebody is getting your attention. Okay. <laughs> One of the joys of, uh, you know, sharing space, there, there's always the possibility that you're going to, you know, block out some time for something and someone's going to need you. Um, but uh, I think, I think one of the things that, that catches my attention is, um, you know, you're offering up a couple of different ideas to your students initially. We're going to take a quick break to pay some bills with the following ads and then bring you right back to our conversation. So right. you're, you're doing this investing and at some point it sounds like there was that recognition that if you've got extras of things, Maybe other people would want them. Maybe there's an opportunity to let them uh, you know, go. We, or do you still have double, doubles and triples of certain issues? So, you know, at one point we had 20,000 comic books in, in the extra bedroom in my house. Wow. Um, so we bought a four bedroom house in Castro Valley. Um, one was for the comic books. One was for all my other books because I do research in other fields. Um, and uh, so my wife said, well, now we have a, a two-bedroom house with two walk-in closets. <laughs> wow. So, so we had these big racks going all the way around one of the rooms, and they were all filled with, uh, with boxes, uh, long boxes of comic books. And, uh, and we would periodically um, add in the new comics from the, from the previous month or two months or whatever, and we put them in all in alphabetical order by collection, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so I, I've always told Aitani I had to get it out of my house because I couldn't stay in my house forever. Um, and then, um, so when we moved out to, we moved to Berkeley and he moved out to El Cerrito and he finally opened the store. I said, here, now you have a back stock. So I donated it to the store. I mean, it was, uh, wow. it's just, um, it was for me, it's the pleasure of collecting. It wasn't, you know, I wasn't trying to make money on it. Now he's, he's doing okay on it. Some of them, but we had a lot of junk. We had a lot of junk, but if, I mean, <laughs> you see, you can see that I'm already working again. And I've got, I've got uh, racks full of books that I have to now go through and catalog and, and put, into the, put into the system. That's, that's what I do. I like, like putting things in order. That's what I like doing. Man, what a gift. What an amazing gift to say, here, you're launching a story. Here's a backstock. I'm just going to, you know, donate to the car. <laughs> and, we, we, and we also collected all the figurines. I mean, we had all the, the Batman black and whites and, and I can see some statues in the back there right over your head um, right those are the ones that i kept for myself um but we had we had a hundred of them or so and that also went into the store because as i said i wasn't doing it for 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 money i was just doing it for this for collecting and having a good time with aton yeah, I mean, I love going into the shop and seeing just all the great stuff that, I mean, you love to look at the walls and, and see these things and you're like, would I ever, would I ever, you know, <laughs> but just to have it and to know you've got it just sitting there and some of the, I mean, some of the figurines are absolutely gorgeous. Do you, uh, do you have any, I mean, the ones that you've kept clearly, they, uh, they're ones you liked, wanted to hold on to, hold a special place. Is there... Is there a one or a top three that sort of shines above the all where you're like, yeah, that's the one I think about the most. Or like if I could save a couple of them and something was happening, these would be definitely be the ones. So um, when I left my first congregation uh, in San Luis Obispo, I was uh, kind of moping around and I went into a Hallmark store and they had a Superman 
uh, figurine uh, with Superman with the chains breaking across his chest. They're not part of the DC uh, direct. They're, they were, it was a Hallmark thing. And uh, so I was treating myself at the time to retail therapy. And uh, he's still in my case behind me. He's, he goes with me wherever I go. Uh, and the, the new ones are just so much more spectacular than the than they were 10 years ago, 20 years ago, that uh, every time I see the new ones, I'm, I want them. Um, the one that I, the one that I, is, is it up there? Do I have the motorcycle up there? No. Where is she? Anyway, I, I have the, the, the Beck Catwoman motorcycle, uh, DC Direct Ooh, one. That, that one nice. is one of my favorites. Very classy. Yeah, it's, it's it's really good, and then uh, and then also Aton has in the store a Legos Cape and Carol Cape and Cowl Cafe from this super superheroes the kids. <laughs> right. So I put that together one time on, on one of the, the special days that we were having, and put it in the case with all the black and whites. And... <laughs> That's awesome. I I love the idea of. I mean, whenever I see those statues, it's a little difficult because then I look at the price tags and I'm just kind of like, okay, I don't know how I can. But you know, you see guys like Todd McFarlane who've come along and just changed how detailed and and <laughs> impressive those statues have become, along with so many others. And you're just right. kind of like, okay, I mean, I want it. I I don't know if I can afford it, but I I want it. <laughs> Well, if you know, if you did an occasional funeral or, or wedding, you'd have a couple extra dollars to, to buy things to buy toys. So, uh, and, that's, and, and that's what Mike Mike uh, knew at, at the crush in, in Castro Valley that if I if I had a wedding or a funeral, I'd be into the store to pick up some of the figures. So, <laughs> disposable I, income. Yeah. Hey, I I also love the fact though that even though you know you're not looking at collecting as being something that offers a financial return, I also got a kick out of uh, something I discovered in one of the stories, which was you you chose to invest kind of uh, I don't know how close to equally, but pretty equally in in both Marvel as well as Warner Brothers at an interesting time that that ended up reaping some impressive results. I right. I'd love to hear so that story from you. So that that's Aton um, wanted to uh, buy the signed copy of the uh, Rebirth of Superman. So we have it with all the all the DC uh, writers, and it's one of those really special ones. Oh, uh, wait a minute. So he also has one that's signed by just Jerry Siegel, uh, one of the Return of Superman. It was signed by Jerry Siegel before he passed away, mm-hmm. and so uh, wow. he was he was thirteen. This was you know years ago. And so this, and he was working at the store. I mean, he's not old enough. He's 13 years old and he's working at the comic book store. They can't pay him because he's too young to get paid. So they're giving him credit. And then I give him the money for the credit and then he'd go buy, you know, he'd go get the, the books for us. And so he actually was making the money that he had the credit for. So, um, but so he collected some money and he decided he's going to spend $300 for that signed Superman. And um, then we heard that Marvel was being sold and it was, was it $10, $10 a, 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 an issue, a share. So um, we decided we'd buy $300 worth of that as well. $300 for the comic book, $300 of Marvel. And since we didn't really read Marvel, but back then we didn't, um, we had to get the Warner Brothers, which was $30 a share. And so we got 10 shares of, of Warner Brothers. So the Marvel stock eventually went bust. 
Um, the Warner Brothers, got, Warner, Warner's Brothers got bought by AOL and then by Time Warner and then et cetera. So um, that one bought him a, a car in high school, uh, an old broken down T-Bird. Uh, was it? Yeah, T-Bird uh, with the port windows and everything. It was an old fire engine red. Uh, we had every once in a while, he'd have to call me and I'd have to come and jump it. Uh, when he was out on a date or something. Um, of course. It's the only time that happens. Um, but meanwhile, the comic book is worth more than than the, that stock was and worth clearly more than the Marvel stock, which went bankrupt. So uh, so the comic book did well, and we still have that. Uh, That's amazing. Um, <laughs> so I, I love the fact that whenever somebody's life has these interwoven pieces where it's like comics and the stories about them and this sort of passion for it just keeps connecting in different ways. I mean, for starters, you know, the fact that you were able to actually like, you know, hang out on a, on a fairly annual basis, it sounds like with Julie Schwartz, that you were able to, uh, you know, get this amazing signed copy of Superman returns that, you know, a little bit of playing around with some stocks on your favorites. One goes bust, <laughs> one goes over the top. <laughs> Yeah. That's pretty amazing. So then I'm also curious, you know, what has the, uh, the interweaving been like as far as, uh, you know, your instruction using this in the classroom talking about comics? Because, you know, I'm, I'm sure you're able to make some uh, examples when you first started using the ideas, but the more you study anything, the more you just sort of like branch out your knowledge. It's really interesting how you find that so many other things you might not have considered are they become part of this discussion simply because uh, what you discover along the way. I love exploration. I love discovery for those reasons. What have you been discovering about using comics in your instruction and the changes from when you first started doing it to where you find yourself now or, or what some of the significant moments might've been? That's, that's an interesting question. Um, one of the, the best things that worked out for me uh, was the, um, histories uh, of the Jewish people by uh, Stan Mack and the book called Homeland, which was done by Marv Wilson, which is about the history of Israel. And it, I, it, there are pictures in there that look like they could be photographs. They're, they're drawn, so, drawn so magnificently and they cover the history for you know, 2000 years. Um, so that's a, a marvelous teaching tool for my class where I teach Jewish history through, through literature. Um, and so when a student has a little bit of trouble you know, keeping up or following what I'm saying, because I will talk around in circles like any other rabbi, um, that, um, so I, I recommend that they get those books and, and they, they find them to be very helpful. Uh, so I use them that way. Uh, one of them that I, I'm using, I used it actually at a book club with, with Eitan at the store, but also I've used it at, at synagogue groups, is the, the issue, the uh, God Damned, which is about uh, Cain. The story of Cain, right. and uh, one of Aton's customers came in and said, "I've always wanted to say this. So, where's the goddamn comic book?" <laughs> so, um, anyway, it's the story of Cain, and uh, gets it goes from Cain all the way to Noah. And uh, I've always, as a kid, even was upset with the story of Noah. I mean, it's nice with all the animals and Noah, and the, but what about all the people that got left behind and drowned? So, I was pretty <laughs> upset with that. Um, and I've been dealing with that for a, for a long time. And I started dealing with the idea um, that's just 
mentioned in offhanded between the two stories, between Adam and Eve and Noah, that the, the sons of God mated with the daughters of man and they produce monsters. This is in chapter five or six of Genesis. And there's no more. That's the end of the story. Um, but then I begin thinking that, uh, and there was a tradition that said that there was a straight line from, uh, from Adam to Noah, that that line had to be pure. And that's why they, they mentioned the whole line in the Bible. Right. So all the things outside of the, uh, that are not human. They're beings, but they're not human. They're monsters. Right. And so that I came to that conclusion. And then Goddamn came out and started to draw pictures of it. And for the first time, I could see what, what I had been imagining academically in my head. I could see drawn out in very vivid detail. Um, the, the monsters are, are monsters. They eat other people and they, you know, and they drive around, whatever. Uh, they're part, part Flintstone, part, you know, EC comics. And uh, so we, we, uh, what I do is I like to show that the storyline in the Bible is illustrated here uh, in ways that I never imagined, even though I was doing research in the same field. So I like that. That lesson was one of my favorites. And uh, I'm going to do it again on the, our holiday coming up next month, uh, where we, we study all night long for the holiday. So I, we have a big community-wide study session. Oh, wow. Um, so <laughs> it sounds like, um, you know, with this story, you were able to, you know, show for them and for many of those that you're trying to like illustrate this idea of here, there's, there's what we think we sort of, you know, hear read when we're, we're looking at this in text. And then here's another idea where it's actually drawn out where the imagination is captured by somebody else and, and shown to you in a way that's, it's interesting in that way that it's, it's sometimes harder to look away from things when they're pictures, you know, you can see a word or you can see a sentence printed and you can read it and you can somehow like make a decision about it. But when you see a picture, if it hits you the right way, if it makes the impact in that moment, even if you look away, do you ever really forget? Probably not. Not for that one. <laughs> six, I still have nightmares about that one. And that was a while ago. The other thing and I yet, like, uh, one, oh, one other thing is, the other thing I like please. to teach is um, the process uh, of thinking that goes behind a lot of these things. I, I like to teach critical thinking. And uh, a couple of years ago, there was a, a series of, uh, split Superman in the in the golden era and, and in the current times. And so in the golden era, he goes and fights against the Nazis, which he, he only did once, I think, in the actual during the war. But because the, the, the Hitler had the spear of destiny, if you remember. Oh, um, yeah, that was the whole thing where he could keep all the superheroes out. Right. So um, there's so there's one issue and it's in the Warsaw ghetto. And all the characters are named Moisha and uh, Yassel. And I mean, they have very clear Miriam, very clear Jewish, even Yiddish names uh, from the ghetto. And there was an article in the San Francisco Chronicle that was complaining that DC did not use the word Jew in these issues, where the characters were clearly Jewish. Anybody who knew anything about them uh, knew that they were Jewish. And I didn't really understand what the, what the problem was. So I started making copies of the, of the comic book um, to discuss it with my students and see if they could see anything wrong with that, uh, if they felt as though the Jews were, 
not portrayed fairly or that they were being ignored or you know that it wasn't a Jewish story. Um, so that's the kind of thing I like to do with them to make them think critically about the, uh, the storylines. I like that idea also because it, it, it presents a, a question that doesn't have a clear yes and no, right or wrong. You know, um, so many times when I was taking writing courses, I remember one of the, the great things is they would say, think about an emotion and then write about the emotion, but don't say what it is. So think about someone you love or think about someone you hate. But don't use those words specifically. Try and write, or and you could exude that idea through the expressions around it. And yet, that was that was an exercise. And it, it sounds like this is a similar exercise in which you're using names that uh, point to uh, a clear history and culture. You're using other elements that do, but you're not actually stating explicitly. And then you're leaving that question to your students, is saying, okay, so you know this isn't a right or wrong, but where do you fall on this, and and why? You know, where is it that this presentation makes a difference for you? That's a that's a really great. Wow. Um, I'm going to have to check that out now. <laughs> when uh, when my student I begin teaching my class, I tell them that if they ever ask me an either or question, is it this or is it this? My answer is usually going to be yes. <laughs> uh, it could be either. And that's what you're asking the question, because both of them make sense to you in some way. And and so we have a tradition that there's a very famous tradition about two men who go to the rabbi and they're complaining about each other and the first one tells his side of the story and the rabbi says you're right and the second guy says wait a minute you haven't even heard my side of the story so he tells his side of the story completely the opposite side of the story and the rabbi looks at him and says you're right too and then the rabbi's spouse comes to the door and says i've been listening in they're saying the complete opposite things they can't both be right and the rabbi says to him or her, uh, you're right too. <laughs> so in my class, you can't, you can't say something that's wrong. It may not be the answer I'm looking for, but it can't be wrong. Right. <laughs> uh, and that's, that's where I think Jewish thinking goes. We, we always talk about what are all the possibilities. And uh, what do you think like. uh, about some of the, uh, you know, some of those who are, are deemed, um, the masters uh, of the craft who have, who have really sort of imprinted, you know, not only who they are, but um, uh, a recognition that if you're reading a work by, um, well, you know, let's go ahead and just go with Eisner, you know, the, the whole concept behind uh, a couple of his stories. I recently had a chat with a great guy about a contract with God and with uh, another uh, friend of mine, we ended up doing um, life on other planet signal from space and with both of those, I, I was really impressed, uh, you know, just how clear his intention was about everything from the words to what the pictures are designed to show you. Um, you know, and my one of my uh, guests that I was talking with when we were describing Contract with God, he was just like, no one does this. Like, no one does what Eisner does. It's like every time he draws a page, it's a different style. And it's a style that's meant to capture that moment and that intention and I feel like when you talk about, I mean, for one, there's an award named after him, which, you know, up until his passing, he was there in person, like, hi, I'm here to give this to you. Right. But, but his name, I think, is synonymous with, um, with excellence, I think, as far as, I mean, so many of his works are seminal, so much of, of what he did from a basic comic strip to defining the graphic novel. Um, you know, how does that fold into the conversation that you're having with your students? 
So uh, you know, I don't know that his name will, well, actually that's not true because next next week I'll be doing, uh, I'm, I'm in the last week of the course and it's American Jewish history. And so one of the things I point out is that Jews went into, into industries that uh, were wide open because nice people didn't do that. And that's the reason Jews went into comic books, not because they, uh, they couldn't get published, because, but because comic books were, were bad for you and were, you know, they, they were disruptive to society or whatever, you know. The, and, so, um, and so that left it wide open for a group of kids that were storytellers. And so that, that's how they got involved. And uh, so it's, it was very natural for Eisner and a couple of his generation to, to tell stories. I mean, that's just what we do. Eitan insists, by the way, that I'm the only person he knows that uh, reads comic books, but doesn't look at the pictures. <laughs> so, really? So I'm more, interested, <laughs> more interested in character development, the story, the plot line, the words. Um, that's my, my field, the study of words. And so I, I'm not really that aware of the, of the artists, but I am more aware of the writers and especially people like Eisner and, and the Kubics uh, also uh, did some very important Jewish work uh, in, their, in their lives. Um, a lot of it's Holocaust stuff because that's very dramatic. And, and so uh, Joe Kubik did, did one called Yussel, which is the Yiddish name for Joseph. So. <laughs> That's interesting, and it's about a, a young man in the in the ghetto, uh, again in the Warsaw ghetto, who uh, was documenting what was going on in the ghetto with the Nazis and the, and the Jews through pictures. Understood. And, and that's and that's the premise of the book. And so he gets picked up by the by the Nazis, and he starts drawing pictures of them, and they they like it, so they let him go. And so that's that's the fantasical fantasical part of it. But the uh, the storyline of how Jews kept records of everything. And they, they hid the records and then went back and found them long after the war. Um, mm -hmm. It's part of our history too. So yeah, I, all I could keep saying is that we tell stories. I mean, it just makes sense. Yeah, that reminds me, I was lucky enough to be a TA in a class and one of the, the books that we were teaching was uh, Mouse by Spiegelman. And, and that was just like a, a really amazing story, telling the narrative, uh, not only from the perspective of the son, but also through the stories that his father would tell him. And also, you know, presenting it in such an interesting choice, you know, with uh, you know, personification of animals, which animals you choose, mice, cats. Um, and, and also just through that, it, it, it seemed like there was almost like a uh, descriptive freedom that, that also felt so jarring when suddenly you would have these very violent stories or these very tragic stories. And you're looking at these sweet characters and it, <laughs> it, 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 it just changed the way that you thought you understood history because this was another telling another story. And I think what I love about stories and why I'll, I'll, I'll keep doing this as long as uh, I can, you know, always make it something that I'm doing is what does it mean when a new story shows you a whole new perspective on something you thought you understood you know, you, you find yourself reading things and you like them and you read more about them and you feel like you might have a better understanding a growing and even deepener. And, and then someone comes along, they go, no, here's this other thing you didn't think about. And you're like, and it fits. It's just now you almost have to widen your head that of much. Even further. Of course, of course. Well, if I ever finish my storytelling, I'll let you know. Um, but I'm writing, I've been writing a novel based on my dissertation uh, because nobody can wow. read a dissertation. It's in dissertationese, which is a language that's only understood by academics. Uh, so I took the ideas that I learned from the New Testament. I'm writing a book about two Jewish people looking for Jesus because uh, they want him to heal 
one of their sisters. And uh, they're always one town behind him. They, they never catch up to him. And so when they get to the town, somebody tells them what uh, Jesus did. I take that directly from the Gospel of Matthew. And then somebody else says, no, nah, you're thinking about somebody else from the Jewish tradition who has the same traditions behind them that are, that are told about Jesus. So it's really comparative religion. Um, but it can, it can be a lot of fun. <laughs> be a lot of fun. That, that sounds awesome. Um, yeah, I, I can picture it now. So this is where I have fun because when you were saying you're the only person who reads comics for the words, I, I do similarly. And, and for me, what always ca caught my attention was when I would look at a panel and think to myself, how do you write that in a script? Once I became aware of the scripts and recently I've been lucky enough to do an online comic strip and it's fun because I, I get to see it, you know, presented after the artist interprets. But along the way, I would catch myself in these moments where I'm like, I have to describe something for someone that I think I want to happen. And I want it to look this way. And then I imagine all those times I saw someone pull it off in a beautiful comic book. And I'm like, how do I get from there to here? How do I? <laughs> because, you know, when it comes to the, the language of the script, I'll laugh when sometimes, you know, someone will make fun of like Tom King, who's a very well-regarded you know, and, and someone will put something like Batman beats up bad guys and Tom King's like, you totally have it. The next line should be Batman stares, Batman, you know, does this, but you know, and he, and the rest of it's just the artist where right, I'm right. looking at the picture and I'm going, no, there's gotta be other times where you tell something that allows them to frame it in a certain way. Um, and it, it becomes such an interesting discovery to, you know, sort of use your imagination in that way. Yeah, I've, I've played around with screenplays. I've never really finished any of them, but I, I have a good imagination, so I like to create ideas and make them, uh, start them out at least. Um, but I want to tell you one scene from my, from my book that you'll get a kick out of. You know the scene of the, the demoniac uh, across the Galilee? He's, in the, he's living in the, in the cemetery, and then there, uh, Jesus chases the, the demons out of him into a herd of pigs. Yes. And the pigs go flying off the, off the mountain into the sea, right? Right. So I have that chapter being told by the pig herders. They're, they're very <laughs> upset with this guy. They ruined their lives. And so, uh, so that's, that's, that's how I tell it. Yeah, it's supposed to be kind of tongue in cheek, but it covers everything. No, that's, that's such a great, I, it reminds me, I feel like it was in the nineties that at one point like time or life hired a few writers and asked them to take moments from the Bible and, and retell them with sort of like a, a modern lens. And it was such a moment, I mean, again, you know, good Christian kid as much as I thought I was, but clearly sheltered, like reading this and being like, is this sacrilege? And yet at the <laughs> same time, I'm reading it and it's showing me things I never considered. Like it, it suggests the idea of like Jesus sees every once in a while a disciple, like take a woman off by themselves for a bit of consulting or something like that. And, and these other ideas where I'm like, you know, no one said that these disciples were or you know inhuman or above you know superior. In fact, in many times they're being you know called out for their faults by Jesus as part of a lesson. So who knows how far that could expand it? It really just sort of broadened the idea, and I loved it with your story. What you would be doing is one reenacting that tradition of storytelling you were describing by having each setting, each new town, be a set of stories that the those on the journey are encountering as they're trying to catch up with someone, but also this idea of, you know, through it, that comparative process of, so when they were doing council of Nicene, you know, they're, they're selecting the books at what point were they going, 
yeah, this perspective, no, sorry. <laughs> you know, there's those, those legendary stories you hear about Jesus as a teenager, all these different other things where it's like, nope, apocrypha, toss it over there. It's not to be included. And as they're, they're reading your novel, I can imagine someone going, that sounds an awful like that, that thing I heard once. And then other ones where they're like, why didn't they include that? I would have read the Bible if they had good stories like that. <laughs> so I, I don't want to, I don't want to be offensive to anybody. I, I, and, you know, I, I have a lot of respect for the writing and, and things like that. And so I treat it with, uh, with great respect, but there's, there's humorous moments. I mean, and there's, there's, these, there's serious moments too, because whenever you go to a town where Jesus has been, there's the trail of destruction from all the people that were there. You know, right. think about the wall outside of Peter's mother's house. You know, people are standing on the wall <laughs> trying to get in. The wall is gone by the time my, my characters get there. So they know that sure. Jesus has been there. Because the boats are sunk and the and the wall is knocked down and there's a big hole in the roof. Um, yep, he's been here. So <laughs> the signs were everywhere. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That that would be a when you finish that. Come on back. That would be awesome. Now, I, I, I wanted to point out something that, that I also uncovered, which was the fact that, um, you know, you still collect up to almost a thousand books a year. Um, are you still drawn to the things that you were drawn to when you were first collecting? What has your evolution been like? Are you, are you strictly DC only? Is that the only stories you find yourself or are there some independents or, you know, are you thinking about them as much scholarly as you are about entertainment and engagement, you know, I'm curious. Uh, Aton <laughs> insists that I read certain things, um, but I, I, you know, I have a full academic schedule and writing schedule. I really don't have as much time as I, I would like to, to read, read comics. Now that I'm retired, I don't have time for anything. Um, <laughs> I've become just incredibly busy. I, I'm giving a, 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 a lesson tomorrow morning and I've been working on it for three or four weeks now. And every, I, I've done so much research on it that I can use maybe 5% of the research that I've done. Uh, <laughs> and I know that I'm only going to use 5%. That doesn't stop me from continuing to do the research because I just love researching. So, uh, but now I have more time for it. And then I don't have time for what I'm supposed to do. Does he, uh, does he ever land you with a real winner where you're like, okay, buddy, you, you, you got me. I was able to read that one. And okay, that, that, that changed my thinking. Do it, do any stick out that, you know, sort of um, uh, when, when you think about like, Hey, he, that, that was one he picked for me that I gave a reader, you know, he hit the nail. <laughs> yeah. He does that often, but there was the one about the football coach, Southern something. Southern what? I can't remember what it's about. A, 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 probably Texas team and the, and the coach is um, probably evil and, you know, the assistant coach is, but it's, it's really about people down, uh, down South and, and their attitude to football and my father being a football coach, my brother being a football coach, I'm the black sheep of the family uh, that I didn't. I wasn't aware your brother was a football coach. Too. <laughs> yeah. uh, and not only was he a football coach, he was a football coach at Grambling before he went on to, to coach in uh, other schools. So uh, that was, that's our family tradition. Um, so that, so that one really touched home. Uh, I read boys with him until I just couldn't stand it anymore. Um, and then <laughs> when the boys came out again, dear Becky, I, I actually like that because there's more storytelling than, than the blood and great, uh, you know, all the gruesomeness <laughs> of it. So uh, I, he's a fan, phenomenal rabbi. Uh, he's a phenomenal writer. Uh, Why the last man? 
Uh, I read every issue uh, when it came out. I definitely got hooked on that. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I, you know, somebody will recommend something to me, and then I'll, if it's if it just strikes the right chord, I'll I'll go after it. Um, I went to we went to a comic book store in Tahoe, and the guy notices that I'm wearing a yarmulke, and he says, "I have a comic book that I think you'll enjoy." And he go reaches in and he gets the six back issues of Ragman. Ragman, probably from, I don't know, the 80s. I don't know when it's exactly from. Yeah, but, late 80s, and, early 90s, something like that, I think. And it was, you know, yes, it was fabulous. It was the, it's a story about a, an Irish kid whose father is Jewish. He didn't know his father was the Ragman. He becomes the Ragman. Um, and, you know, and, and it's like, it becomes a superhero in the ghetto um, who's, uh, weakness is fire because of the, the rags, right? The rags right. could catch on fire. Right. Um, it was a great story and I loved it. I, I think it was a DC book. It is a DC book. I mean, it, it is. He's a great character. I mean, and the thing that I love about the concept behind the, uh, the rags is each patch is a soul right. and each one can lend him something that he needs in that moment and earn so much time um, off of their penance and achieve a form of redemption at some point. Uh, right, so that's, that's the modern iteration, but the original iteration was that he was a, a golem. Um, the golem was a clay man. This is, a lot of people think the suit man is based on the golem. The golem was a clay man brought to life by the rabbis and he could fly and he could uh, see through walls and he could walk through walls and he, he, and uh, his job was to, to guard the the ghetto from uh, all sorts of mischief. And, uh, but he was, he also didn't have a mind of his own. So whatever he was told to do, like Mickey, uh, the, the sorcerer's apprentice, you know, if right. you just tell him what to do, he just kept doing it and doing it and doing it. The story about the, the well, the Mickey Mouse movie comes from the Golem stories because that's what he does. He brings the water from the well till he just, right. you know, the whole house is full <laughs> of water. Um, so, the, the so the, the the takeoff on that was that you, now you have this golem. It's not made of clay anymore. It's made of rags, mm. and and the, the story behind it is that the that the father, Rory's father, um, never told Rory about it because he was embarrassed because he didn't stay to fight through the very last minute when the ghetto was burning. That mm. he left, but he had, you know he'd done part of it, but and he was just embarrassed by that. So uh, that's that. Uh, and uh, I, I also have all the things stuff. I have a lot of stuff from the thing. That is bar mitzvah. Really? Uh, you know, the, yeah, I like, uh, I, I still collect, especially the, the Jewish stories that are in comic books that I can find that are specifically Jewish. And uh, they can't, Batwoman, as you might have, might, have, might have seen or not seen, had a Jewish funeral. Yes. And, <laughs> and, uh, and Batman, when he goes back to Alfred Pennyworth's grave, he leaves a, a, a pebble on the grave. We don't bring flowers to graves. We save that money for charity. And we, bring, we take a rock and put it there to let people know that we were there. Hmm. And um, so Bruce Wayne puts a pebble on, the, on Pennyworth. Now, Alfred Pennyworth is not Jewish, but Bruce Wayne's first cousin Right. Cain, <laughs> you go back to this Jewish name, Cain, okay, right. who's a very Jewish character, right? Batwoman is, is very Jewish. There's menorahs in the pictures and everything like that. Her mm -hmm. father is Jewish, right? Mm -hmm. um, and his father, her father, is Martha Wayne's sister, a brother. Right. 
That means that Martha Cain is Jewish. By Jewish law, uh, anybody who's born to a Jewish mother is Jewish. So now we have a Jewish Batman. <laughs> it, it reminds me too, when they reintroduced Batwoman, one of the other elements behind her story was that there was that book of Cain that they were, you know, that they were working in and later they, they changed the narrative and everything, you know, got switched back up again. But right. I do remember when she popped back on, that was one of the other elements, but I was like, book of Cain, where did this come from? Like, Hey DC, what's going on guys? You're really, you're really building a mythology here and pulling this, uh, you know, these pieces together. I, I was, I was really caught by that, but I, I did not make that connection that you just did for me where I'm like, that's right. Actually. You, you don't if, read you Jewish know, magazines too. <laughs> You have to read that? Jewish magazines which said that DC made a mistake and made Batman Jewish by mistake. <laughs> I, I did not read that magazine. Um, I will have to find that now, however way I have to hook or crook. I, I will find a way. Um, look, I made a promise to you that we would keep you know, in mind the fact that being retired, you have absolutely no time to yourself. <laughs> You're able to squeeze me in between appointments. But I, I'm always interested in the fact that I like to think I have an idea when I'm, I'm presenting uh, an interview and I'm asking questions, but just like we were talking about, you know, there's, there's all these different ways I haven't considered. I loved when you were talking about um, so many different writers at the time going into comic books. I had a teacher who told me that, you know, if you look at most of the Westerns that they were also written by Jewish writers. And he's like, actually they were Easterners. They were these stories about living in places like Eastern Europe and having these conflicts. And then they just took those stories, they brought them over here. And his theory was they basically turned the cowboys, which in his mind were the, uh, the bums of the West into heroes through these Easterner stories as he would describe them. And, and that was just a perspective where I was like, never thought of it that way. Now I'm, you know, hearing you describing this idea of, you know, moving into comic books. So I always think about this, the question I didn't ask, the perspective I didn't consider. And when you're talking with people about uh, comics, about uh, using them in discussions about faith, and someone like me is asking you questions, do you ever find yourself going, he almost asked the right question. He was so <laughs> close. If he would have just asked this question, the answer I had ready for. <laughs> so I love to ask did I miss a question that you could have shared something or is there something you're always waiting for somebody to ask that question? So you go, been waiting for that. Boy, do I have an answer for you. <laughs> um, possible. I will think of it tomorrow, uh, but not, not, not right now. I, I'm not right. that quick. Uh, I love the questions that you asked and I had a great time uh, just talking with you. And Harry, uh, I really appreciate that. <laughs> so uh, I will, back in touch with you when I finish my book after 15 years I promise hey that would be awesome I would love to have you back on I always like to also let you know uh, anyone who comes on know that somebody listening or watching because I'll also put this on YouTube at some point might think man I would love to follow up with that guy about some of the stuff he talked about I would love to follow up with that person and and ask questions. And if you have a method that you like to communicate the most, I'd love to give you an opportunity to let anybody listening or watching know, hey, this is a way you can reach me if you want to keep talking about any of things, any of the things I brought up or, or books, you know, that you can get into or anything else. How can people reach out and, and make contact with you if they're not in your class already? Uh, it, I guess the easiest way is to through email. Um, I'm okay. not, uh, not very good with a lot of the other methods. And the That's email is okay. pretty easy. It's, it's harry.manhoff at gmail. Um, and all you have to do is remember that it's Hoffman outside, inside out. Manhoff is Hoffman inside out. 
Hey. So it's got, it's got an, extra, <laughs> an extra H in it that some people might miss. Um, so it's Harry.Manhoff. I'd, Harry. I'd love to talk to anybody. Uh, gosh, anybody who let me talk, I'll talk. <laughs> well, I've enjoyed every minute of it. I'm going to stop the recording so we can stop being so uh, polite and official and everything and just wrap up off screen. And uh, hey, I love whenever I'm having a conversation, it's ending with a laugh. So Harry, thanks for a great conversation and lots of great laughs, really. Thank you. And that brings us to the end of episode number 96. I really enjoyed everything that Harry and I talked about. I, I got a big kick out of how something so simple as a plan to only collect one or two books turned into this, wow really long and fun journey and the fact that it still seems to be charging forward with a lot of possibilities in store. I know I'm looking forward to the chance when I can have Harry back on talk more about comics and perhaps uncover a few more stories to share with you. More importantly, I'm always looking forward to hearing a story you have to share that would be a great fit on Storytelling with Seth. And I do my best to leave you a few ways in the liner notes to let me know. Check those out. And hopefully, one of your stories will be featured here soon on Storytelling with Seth. Until next time.